Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Many of you may be aware that in the past month, there have been a series of um, decisions taken by the government, the current government in the state of Israel, which were not found to be um, helpful by uh, Jews living outside the land of Israel, uh, those associated with the Reform, Conservative, and Reconstructionist movement, and perhaps some of the more traditional Jews, as well as some Jews living in the state of Israel. Those decisions related to how women would have access to prayer at the Kotel, the Western Wall, and how um, um, men and women worshiping together would have access, as well as some decisions regarding the um, power of the uh, Orthodox establishment, the chief rabbinate in Israel, to make determinations about conversions both in Israel and acceptable conversions outside the land of Israel. All of these government decisions have uh, raised the question of what is the relationship religiously and politically, of Jews living outside the land to the land itself. And with me this morning to talk about these issues and others is Rabbi Lawrence Englander of Toronto, Canada. Rabbi Englander was the founding rabbi of Congregation Solel in Mississauga. He is now the rabbi emeritus there. He is the chair of Artsenu, the worldwide organization of Zionists associated with the reform movement. He is the recipient of the Order of Canada and is the co-editor of a forthcoming book on liberal Zionism entitled Fragile Dialogue. Rabbi Englander, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the program. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, you heard my introduction. I don't know if you want to add anything to it before we get to our conversation, or you want to clarify anything I said for our listeners. No, I, I, I think that's fine, other than to say that you and I have been good friends for a long time. We have been. Um, far too long to mention on air how old <laughs> we are. Um, but... We are chatting with each other this morning because my dear friend, Rabbi Lawrence Englander, has an expertise and is a spokesperson for the worldwide movement of liberal Zionists. And so I want to begin with something that you have great expertise and have given a great deal of thought is, and that is, um, since the establishment of the state of Israel in 1947 by the UN Declaration and the completion of the War of Independence in 1948 and the proclamation of the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel. What is the notion of Zionism as you see it and how it impacts on uh, liberal Jews? We'll expand that term liberal in any way you'd like. That's a very important question, because even amongst the Jewish community, there's not a universal definition of what Zionism is. So to give you one extreme, now that Israel has become a state, Zionism is the objective of having a state inhabited by Jews uh, and, and clearly a majority, 
and governed by Jews. And that's it. That's the entire objective, according to that definition of Zionism. For liberal Zionists, that's not enough. And even the liberal camp is divided into uh, its own components, uh, which reflect the movements in Judaism. So I represent Reform Judaism and Reform Zionism. Uh, and in what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm sure that the conservative movement would uh, w- would be basically in agreement with this. And, and if I could just clarify for some mm-hmm. of our listeners, when you use the term reform and conservative, we're talking about Jews who have a religious uh, lifestyle. Uh, Style and who have an affinity for a religious life, but may not be um, fulfilling all the traditional aspects associated with Jewish religious practice. Would that be fair to say? Well, I, I, I guess I'd look at it the other way. Okay. Um, th- that uh, certainly these are the non-Orthodox movements, and unlike Orthodoxy that believes that the, uh, the, the biblical laws must be applied uh, today as they were hundreds uh, of years ago, uh, liberal Judaism, conservative and reform, basically believe that Judaism evolves as we do. And so it's not a question of really reducing what we do, but in many cases adding. And a perfect example of that is the role of women in Jewish life. And that in Reform Judaism, uh, men and women uh, lead services, uh, read from the Torah, deliver sermons. In my congregation, the only thing the women don't do is go into the men's washroom. So, um, having said that, we have a better sense of um, what the term liberal Jew might relate to or define, and consequently, let's then talk about what, how liberal Jews and Zionism interact. What we do is we go right back to the Israel Declaration of Independence, as it was written in 1948. And in a key paragraph, number 13, in that declaration, it says that Israel will operate, the state of Israel will operate according to the, the Western values of uh, equality, uh, uh, regardless of uh, sex, of uh, race, religion, etc. And it will also operate according to the prophetic values of justice, compassion, and peace. And almost in a seamless way, the Declaration of Independence kind of molded two very important traditions for Jews living today. And those are the traditions of Western liberal democracy and the traditions of biblical prophecy. And the two of them come together. So we as liberal Zionists are saying that we are looking forward to what Israel can become in recognizing the values embedded in that statement in the Declaration of Independence. In other words, Israel is a work in progress, and we want to make sure that that progress continues toward those values of justice, peace, equality, etc. So that's a really interesting way uh, to look at the issue, namely to hold the state of Israel, the entity of the Israel, accountable to that which was affirmed in its um, Declaration of Independence. Are, are you kind of suggesting that the tensions that exist today um, between diaspora Jews, those living outside the country and those living inside the country, are the result of um, time eroding the commitment of uh, 
successive Israeli governments um, to those principles? I think there is a tension. That's uh, beyond doubt. But I, I, I would uh, draw the lines of the tension a little bit different, uh, differently, Rabbi, I, because I think that there are many, and I've met many, uh, liberally-minded Israeli Jews who feel the same way that I do. So it's not just a division between uh, Israel and the diaspora. I think really the division that we've come to is between the current Israeli government policies and many Israelis and diaspora Jews who, who think and believe otherwise. And uh, to describe the source of those tensions, uh, we have to understand that in Israel, the political system works differently than it does here in Canada. I mean, here we have uh, a small number of parties, and the one that forms a majority forms the government or makes a coalition. In Israel, there are dozens of parties uh, because the population is so diverse. Um, we, we have uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, some of whom support the state of Israel, some of whom are waiting for the Messiah. We have 20% of the population who are uh, Arabs, uh, Arab-Palestinians. We have the vast majority of Israelis who are secular, but who will vote different ways, just the way secular Canadians will vote in different ways. Um, so with all with all and we have people who come from a western european culture we have people who come from a culture of uh, arab countries uh, wh- where they left to uh, come to the state of israel so all of them of course come with their own ideologies and their own visions of what they want israel to be in the current coalition uh the prime minister I- is the head of a party called likud which is basically similar, I would say, to the Canadian Conservative Party, although more, a, a bit more to the right than, than our Conservative Party would be. And he has formed a coalition with parties to the right of him, uh, which include uh, ultra-Orthodox parties. But also include secular parties yes. who have a, a, a more nationalistic uh, approach to some of the issues with regard to Israel and its neighbors. That is quite correct. So there are issues that, uh, just to clarify for our listeners, the coalition would be identified as to the right on the political spectrum. Yes. But people have, the different parties understand right somewhat um, uniquely. So there's the right uh Uh, with regard to religious behavior, there's the right with regard to political behavior, but um, is on the left religiously, uh, right? Because it's a more secular party. There's a party that is identified primarily, though not exclusively, with um, those whose lives began in the previous Soviet Union or in Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of those different... Um, dynamics emerge to create coalition. Uh, we haven't had a real coalition in in Canada in a long time, although I suppose the coalition in British Columbia is the closest we've had, and there it's only three parties yeah. that were struggling. Yeah. Um, good. So all of that dynamic forces the government of Israel to make decisions that... Um, may not be seen by those outside the coalition as conforming with their sense of the stated purpose of the state of Israel. That's right. And how and, do you, Yeah, go ahead. Just to add into the pot, 
I think the one thing that unifies the various parties of the current coalition is the uh, primary value of security for Israel and its citizens. Um, as long as uh, rockets continue to fall in Israel, as, as long as uh, Arab leaders surrounding Israel continue to utter threats of Israel's destruction, um, as long as all these threats persist, the security card is a very uh, successful one to play uh, for the Israeli electorate. And so when our liberal Zionists come forward and say, wait a minute, there are other values that are important too, such as um, the one you mentioned about the Western Wall, that men and women should be able to play, pray equally right. um, at the wall, that all conversions of all movements in Judaism should be uh, accepted uh, equally, which, by the way, as a sidebar, they are accepted equally by the Israeli government, it is only the chief rabbinate who will not accept all streams of, uh, of Judaism's uh, conversions equally. Um, I, I just gained a recent distinction of being put on the blacklist of the chief rabbinate of Israel, uh, meaning that my conversions will, will not be accepted by them. Uh, Which, as I understand, they would have never been accepted for the last right. 45 it, it, years. It, it changes nothing, except I got a lot of congratulatory emails. Right. Well, Mazel Tov, I suppose, <laughs> is you. in order. Yeah. Um, so, But anyway, just not ahead. to lose this thought, when, when uh, I I Israelis um, that are on the liberal side... Uh, make these contentions saying, you know, we, we have to talk about this, we have to talk about the treatment of um, occasional workers, foreign workers in Israel. We have to talk about the, the unequal distribution of funds to Arab schools versus Jewish schools within Israel proper. We're not even talking about the occupied territories. When we talk about uh, what, what became known as economic justice, that something has to be done to allow young couples in Israel to be able to afford an apartment, uh, and, and that some equity has to be uh, addressed there. When they raise all these issues, the current government can say, oh yes, these are all important, but security is so uh, overarching that we have to concentrate completely on that. So and I so everything else gets put onto a, a shelf. Thank you. I, I want to push the issue a bit about Israel-Diaspora relations with regard to um, religious accommodation. In mm -hmm. the media, um, the firestorm, as they say, was created when um, the current government seems to have gone back on a previous commitment to make accessible at a section of the Western Wall uh, contiguous with that which people see in the media, but not necessarily um, visibly contiguous because of a ramp um, that separates. Um, so the government goes back on that. Um, and Jews living outside the land believe that they have been um, excluded from the possibility of... Um, gender-neutral worship. But in your experience, are Israelis um, in the main interested in this issue? Or is this an issue that reflects our own Western perception about what religion is? Because uh, that's really what interests me, I have to admit. Yeah. Are we imposing Western 
understandings of what religion is on basically uh, a secular society with some uh, large amount of fundamentalism and large amount or smaller amount of uh, liberal religious life? I, that's a very important question. Let me try and answer it this way. If we regard the Western Wall as a cause celebre in itself, then you're right. I think we're imposing some Western values on, on a society that looks at things differently. However, what I would suggest is that the Western Wall is not that cause celebre, but it is rather a symbol. So it's just a, 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 a attracted a focus because the Western Wall is something you can see and you can touch, and some of these other issues are more abstract, but I think they're all linked. So what do I mean by the, the Western Wall, the Kotel, uh, as a symbol? Very often when groups go over to uh, Israel, uh, Jewish and Christian groups, uh, one of the first sites that they will see when they visit Jerusalem is the Western Wall. And in that sense, the Western Wall doesn't really have an in, any inherent holiness itself. It wasn't even part of the original temple. It was a retaining wall uh, on the compound uh, on, on which the temple stood. But why it is so significant, I think, is because it has been kind of the, the focal point for Jews around the world and, and many non-Jews to gather, and it has been a focal point for the greatest hopes of the human race, the hopes for peace, the hopes for justice, the hopes, the hopes for um, all of us getting along as, uh, as neighbors uh, and for war to, and conflict to cease. And I think... The wall, if those stones could hear, that's the message that, that's being delivered over and over again when people visit that site. So it's not the stones, to me, that make that site holy. It's the people who visit it and what they do there that makes it holy. And, and do you have a sense that that lovely uh, prophetic understanding of the wall prophetic referring to the ancient Hebrew prophets, not your own prophecy, although you may be a prophet. <laughs> not at all. Um, but do you have a sense that that message, which is so powerful and is universal, has been lost in a kind of iconography of the wall as it now exists, um, and that um, somehow that universal um, hope and um, expectation has been lost to a greater particularism, uh, religious particularism, and, and perhaps nationalism? And now we get into the issue that the reform movement is dealing with right now over the Western Wall, and that's the issue of messaging. And Great. I think Thank you're right. You. We want to avoid that iconography. We want to avoid the, the, the worshipping uh, uh, of a wall, uh, which would make it no more than an idolatrous shrine, if that's the way we go with it. And unfortunately, I think turning the Western Wall into an Orthodox synagogue, to me, has done exactly that. It's really made it a form of idol worship, uh, which, which I feel is very unfortunate. But as you say, most Israelis would say, so who cares? Let them go there. We don't go there. We have no desire to go there. So what are you making such a fuss about? And I think the real fuss is in the messaging, and the messaging is this. If we use the Western Wall as a symbol, it becomes a symbol of Jewish unity, that all Jews everywhere in the world are or should be equal. They should all have equal rights uh, within Israel and beyond Israel. And that is what we are advocating. 
So very often the ultra-Orthodox will turn to us liberal Jews and they'll say, you are dividing the Jewish people because you are straying from our interpretation of Jewish law. My answer to them is, on the contrary, it is the ultra-Orthodox who are uh, dividing the Jewish people, and it is the current Israeli government that is dividing the Jewish people by forcing these divisions between us by saying, you can't worship here, or you, you, you can't convert. Uh, your rabbis can't officiate at conversions uh, w- w- within this country. Your rabbis are not legitimate to sign wedding papers uh, for people who marry. Um, and so it's those policies, I believe, that are creating divisions within the Jewish people. So our message, using the wall as a symbol, but no more, is to say we are advocating and we are fighting for the unity of the Jewish people, including the ultra-Orthodox, who may not accept us, but we accept them as legitimate ways to practice Judaism. Our slogan in reform is that there's more than one way to be a Jew, just as there's more than one way to be a Christian or to be a member of any other religion. With the proviso that a person's freedom to practice the religion in the way they see fit ends when it impinges on the rights of a fellow religionist to do the same thing. So that's pretty sophisticated messaging in a world that likes its messaging and 140 character uh, tweets. Um, Do you think that um, the... Jews who affirm a liberal religious life, either through association with one of the major movements in North America or in Israel, um, as there are um, congregations associated with the worldwide uh, reform movement, the worldwide conservative movement. Indeed. um, Do you think that they... um, are in assent to the proposition that that should be the messaging they want to give, or are they so caught up in the politics that it's impossible to um, move beyond this, what you call in your new book, fragile dialogue, which sometimes um, devolves into no dialogue and rather uh, a sense of shouting at each other um, in which nobody really um, listens carefully. Yeah. In a sense, the two recent events that you started off with have given us an opportunity And I would imagine that people listen to your program because they want to understand the subtleties. They want to understand um, more than the headlines, more than the sound bites of what's going on uh, in Israel or or, or anywhere else in the in the religious world. And one of the purposes of the messaging that I've mentioned, one of the purposes of the book that that I'm co-editing is to say we have to create an open space. We have to create an open room where people can talk with each other even though they disagree. And that we have to at least allow for the fact that we must listen to other points of view, even if it makes us uncomfortable sometimes. But we would never arrive at any kind of consensus or any form of common action unless we do that and begin to listen to each other and also come into that room with the assumption that we don't know all the right answers, that we don't possess all the truth, and that we're willing to learn that truth from others. Once we do that, however, 
I think we have to escape the liberal fallacy, which is, as liberals, we often assume that all rational people will ultimately agree, and that since our proposals are so reasonable and so rational, all we have to do is wait until people understand them, and then, of course, they'll come over to our side. And I think with developments um, recently in other parts of the world, too, including the United States, I think we're beginning to understand it doesn't work that way. And that sometimes it's the people that um, gain possession of the messaging uh, organs that are available to us and the way they use them have uh, a great deal of success in convincing people to their point of view, which gets me to the point that once we create that open room and that safe space in which to dialogue, I really think that liberal people have to become more assertive. And, they, and we have to understand that we, too, need a message that we have to get out there. We can't just wait for people to come to us. You know, um, Rabbi Englander, you began by talking about the prophetic message and the prophetic values. Mm-hmm. The prophets of the Old Testament um, were not um, facilitators. They were uh, yellers mm-hmm. in the best uh, tradition of prophets as um, later prophets, Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, Um, who felt that the message had to be powerfully uh, promulgated before people could actually sit down. Um, Are you suggesting that perhaps uh, liberal Jews in North America and Israel need to um, find their own prophet before they can force um, individuals to the open room? Well, we have to remember, as you well know, that the prophets, as eloquent and as passionate as they were, were failures in their time. (laughs) Uh, And that's because you just can't continue uh, hectoring a people and expect them to to like you uh, or or to do what you you, uh, advocate, uh, nor can you make the task too hard uh, or impossible for them to fulfill. So I think we now live in a world where leaders are multiple uh, types of, uh, of personalities. I think what we need are leaders who have prophetic uh, spirit within them, but who also have political skills to know how to implement the values that, that, they, that they hold dear. There, there has to be a bit of a philosopher and a thinker in, in a good leader, and there has to be someone who has social skills, who is able to get out to the people and relate to them uh, and, and bring them aboard. Now, now, now that's a pretty tall order. And so so does that suggest those. that you're moving to Israel to run for parliament? <laughs> because as my memory holds, you have all those skills. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure about that, especially when it comes to the political side of things. Uh, uh, my, my producer tells us that we're into our last few seconds. Okay. So I'm wondering if you have a last message for our listeners this morning about the power of liberal Zionism. I think it's growing. I I, I think it's a nascent power that's growing. And I'm going to make a wild prediction that what we may see in Israel over the next decades, uh, and hopefully the next decade, will be the burgeoning of a new Judaism, nothing less. Well, I, I hope that you are prophetic. 
Um, I would remind our listeners that uh, just recently Canada celebrated its 150th anniversary, and Israel is not even halfway there. So right. as Canada continues to wrestle with its own sense of destiny and definition uh, related to the varieties of people we live who live in this land, uh, we'll give Israel a break for at least uh, another five years until it gets to its um, uh, 75th anniversary. Six a years. break, a break, but a still break. holding, but still holding its feet to the fire. Absolutely, because that's what our liberal Israelis want us to do. They say we need your voice. You need to speak up because without you, we're not going to be heard. Well. You've given us a lot to think about. I'm sure you've helped our listeners have a better understanding of the uh, events and the uh, story behind the headlines. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Lawrence Englander of um, Toronto, um, uh, a, a um, recipient of the Order of Canada, and invite you to look forward to his new book, the editor uh, of a book entitled Fragile Dialogue, Liberal Zionism. Um, For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom.